2 Corinthians chapter 4 this morning. That's our passage for the sermon. I'll read our passage and then pray and then have you be seated. We'll start reading in chapter 4, verse 7, and read on into chapter 5, verse 10. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things which are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Father, this is your word. And this is some of the most realistically painful and supernaturally optimistic verses in all the Bible. Would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts that are eager to receive your word? Would you teach us Christ? Would you give us hope? Would you grant us joy and perseverance for your namesake, for your glory? And because of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, chapter 4, verse 16 is basically the center of the passage I just read for us, and really it is the center and key to this passage. That little sentence, we do not lose heart at the beginning of verse 16, is really the aim that Paul has in mind as he writes these words to the Corinthians. It's actually how he began this chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. I think we all know what it means to lose heart. It's disappointment. It's disillusionment. It's the loss of hope. It's the loss of confidence or courage. It's the opposite of being heartened or strengthened or emboldened. We know what it means to lose heart, partly because we know 
what it feels like to lose heart. We're familiar with that. We could all confess that at times we have lost heart. We have been disheartened by circumstances. I think we all agree as well that no one wants to lose heart. That's not anyone's goal. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I hope today someone rips my heart out. I hope today my dreams are crushed. No, none of us want to lose heart. And so Paul's bold, emphatic statement, we do not lose heart, should shock us a bit. Right? It should, it should grab our attention. Imagine someone of weak constitution who's constantly sick, uh, always a, a new ailment, new pains all the time. And imagine that person hearing someone else say, I never get sick. That sick person would either roll his eyes in disbelief or say, what, what is this? What did you say? What are you doing? What are you eating? What, how are you taking care of yourself? What, what do I do? Well, I hope you don't have the first of those responses to Paul's remarkable claim. I hope you don't roll your eyes in disbelief when he says, we do not lose heart. But instead, because this is not just Paul's testimony, it's not just one guy's insight, but the word of God, we should, we should perk up our ears at the sound of that phrase, we do not lose heart. Though it seems lofty, though it seems otherworldly, though it seems impossible and unreal, this is the word of God and it is alive and active and it does great things to show us ourselves. It does great things to show us our God. It gives life, it gives light, it is our food and it is like a hammer that shatters a rock. Our passage begins by referring to a treasure. We have this treasure, Paul says in verse, verse 7. Now before we get into our outline this morning, I want us to think about this treasure carefully and, and patiently really. This treasure that Paul talks about in verse 7 can't be assumed or just quickly defined and then we move on. In fact, that's been Paul's point in the verses before. In the verses before, he's been talking about this treasure, which is the gospel. And as he's talked about this treasure, he's not talked about it quickly or coolly. Uh, he's talked about it passionately and patiently. You see in verse 3? Here's the treasure. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then here's how this gospel enters Dark hearts of unbelief. Here's how satanic blindness is conquered. Verse 6, for God who said, light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have that treasure, Paul says. Do you believe the gospel is a treasure? Oh, I know every Christian is glad for the gospel. But you can be glad for it like a drowning man is glad for a life raft or a life preserver or a rescue boat that comes. You see, thankfulness for its usefulness is not the same thing as a celebration of the thing itself. So no one gazes upon a life raft like someone gazes upon a, a classic Ferrari, right? No one gazes upon a life preserver, even if it saved your life, like a man gazes upon his wife on the night of their, their wedding. And sometimes in scripture, the gospel is described to us in pretty 
utilitarian ways. It tells us what it does. It saves us from the wrath to come. It, it saves us from hell. It saves us from eternal death. And we need to hear those things. We need to be reminded that the gospel is not just beautiful and it's not just poetry. It actually works. But sometimes in scripture, like here, the gospel is described in terms of its glory and power and beauty, its radiance, that it's an unmatched treasure. Here, the power of the gospel is described to us like creation, like God's creation of that nuclear power plant we call the sun which God spoke into existence with a word, light be. Just the other day I was showing my kids how you can burn paper with a magnifying glass. When the sun's light, as you know, is refracted and concentrated through even a cheap plastic magnifying glass, you can start a fire in your backyard. That's amazing. The sun is 93 million miles away. That's really far away. And with a cheap magnifying glass, you could burn through your skin if you dared do it, if you were stupid enough to do it. That really shouldn't surprise us, especially here in the West and in the desert. We, we know about the sun's heat pretty well, right? You can feel the heat of the sun on your skin almost every day here. And on a clear summer day, you go outside and it is sometimes immediately uncomfortable to your bare skin. You can feel yourself cooking a little bit. The sun's a big deal. At 93 million miles away, that thing is powerful. Oh, and by the way, our sun, our star, is just an average size one. Uh, some stars are so big you can fit 250 of our suns in them. Some stars are so bright they're a million times brighter than our sun. Those are just bonus stars in God's creation. They're superfluous in a sense. Let's just think about the power of light in general. Every time darkness and light get in a fight, light wins. Right? Whenever there's a competition between darkness and light, light chases the darkness away. Right? Darkness is no match for the light. If the sun's rays hit a space, there is no darkness there, there is light. Well, that's the stuff that Paul's tapping into here at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 4. When he talks about the treasure and the power and the glory of the gospel going into our hearts, he goes cosmic on us. He goes into physics for us. He, he talks about creation itself when God created everything out of nothing. And if we could have been there to witness that, if we could have been there for God to, to see God create that nuclear fireball called the sun, like the angels were there to see, we wouldn't just be thankful that he made it. We wouldn't just be curious about it. We wouldn't just say, thanks for giving us a place to live. It looks pretty cool. How about that? But no, we would stand in awe, in speechless worship. We would fall down on our yet created, yet uncreated faces. We would tremble. Well, in our salvation, God is doing that. He is bringing us into a whole new creation. And Paul even adds to that creation illustration. In verse 6, he, he gets poetically theological. He gets mystical and mysterious when he talks about how it relates to Jesus. He says, God has shown in our hearts with this beam of sunshine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That means our salvation has a face. Our salvation has a face. God's glory has a face. And it is in the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the glory of God that shows 
so brightly, shines so brightly in and through the face of Christ is a glory that is to be known. So it's the knowledge of God's glory which shines in and through Jesus. And that relates to news and information, yes. It's about gospel facts of his death and burial and glorious resurrection, but it's not just information, is it? It's so much more. It is glorious. It is personal. It is experiential. As John Piper says, God is the gospel. The good news is not just that we don't get judgment or that we get heaven instead of hell, but the gospel is that we get God. Or as King David put it, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or as Jonathan Edwards put it, there is a big difference between hearing and believing that honey is sweet and tasting honey. This is the only hope for our spiritual blindness. God's penetrating, saving light. Our hearts by nature are filled with an intrinsic spiritual darkness because of sin. More than that, it's a satanic blinding. It is a satanic darkness that occupies our hearts naturally. We cannot see. We grope for answers. We look for light. We look for a face. We look for God. We look for a salvation. And we'll never see it. In dark hearts, even the true gospel is not discerned. It's not embraced. It's not loved. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And hence, they will not truly see within those dark hearts who Jesus is. They will not want him. They will not seek him. Unless God speaks glorious light, light be into these dark hearts so that we see the face of Christ as the glory of God and the knowledge that we need. Unless he speaks that light into our hearts, we are blind and hopeless and helpless and satanically bound. What a difference God makes. And here, by the way, is the explanation for why your unbelieving friend doesn't like it, doesn't get it, and won't embrace it no matter how many times you gently and thoroughly talk to him or her about it. There's a spiritual blindness at work. There's a satanic binding that's going on. Only God can, can break through. And here's the explanation for why you came to believe. Not because, oh, you had a good heart or a sensitive heart or because mom taught you well. It's because God has spoken light with gospel knowledge into your heart, illuminating it and giving you faith. Praise be to God. That's a treasure. That's a treasure. That's the foundation upon which Paul builds as he makes a, an intricate case for not losing heart. Okay? Now we're ready to dig into the passage that we read. That was all introduction. What we see here first is the Christian's paradoxes. The Christian's paradoxes, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 4, give us a number of paradoxes or truths that are held in tension together. Verse 7 all by itself gives four of them. We'll treat that as one, though. Uh, it's really one kind of paradox. There are really four themes or four kinds of paradoxes in these verses. The first paradox is what we could call treasure and clay. We've already talked about the treasure. Verse 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. We've already talked about the treasure, but now we need to see this paradox that the glorious treasure we've just talked about is actually put into jars of clay. The jars of clay are our lives, our beings, our bodies and souls. But why does Paul call these things jars of clay. Jars of clay in the ancient world were like Tupperware. They were Tupperware. They were used for a while, either to carry water or wine or food, but then eventually discarded. I suppose Tupperware isn't even the, the best word for what these things were like because good quality Tupperware, not your average crapperware, like Uncle Rico says, 
Good Tupperware can last a good long while, right? You probably have some, some groovy ones from the 70s. It's a nice burnt orange or something still at your house. And so maybe, maybe like those, um, I think they're glad they make the, the really thin ones now. Or maybe it's a Ziploc. Maybe, I don't know the name brand, but I, we have a lot in our house. We use these things often. Those thinner ones that are more disposable are probably closer to what uh, these jars of clay in the ancient world were like. If you gave one of those with food in it to your friend and he said to you later on, oh, I got to get that thing back to you, that container you gave me the food in, you'd go, just, just keep it, man, or throw it away. It's all right. You don't buy those things hoping to keep them for 10 years or 20 years or something. And, and that's what it was like with these clay jars in the ancient world. They were a dime a dozen. And they were far less durable than plastic. They're even far less durable than our pottery today. So they, they broke and chipped all the time. You can imagine that archaeologists, when they excavate an ancient city, they find all kinds of clay pots because they, they were everywhere. It was, they were so common. And yet most of them, they find, are in pieces now because they were prone to break. And that's what Paul says Christians are like. Christians, he says, are nothing special. They're fragile, they're earthen, they're insignificant, they're easily and frequently discarded by the world. The gospel resides in that. The gospel resides in this, this fat, out of shape, lazy, no good thing. This, I mean, it's just amazing. Paul mixes metaphors for his next paradox. He tells us why God does it like this. He first spoke of the gospel as a treasure. Now he's going to speak of it as a power. So here's the second paradox. It's weakness and power. He says in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I think this verse is easily misunderstood, and I hear it misunderstood often. Paul here is not saying that when I recognize my weakness, I am made stronger. He is not saying, like the pop song goes, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. He's not talking like that. He is saying that as we embrace our weaknesses, God's strength, not our own, God's strength is made more apparent. This is not a recipe for how to feel strong or how to feel power. We know that because verse 7 isn't a recipe for how to stop being a clay jar. Your clayness is assumed throughout this verse and throughout your life. So there's a big difference between an expectation to feel strong and an expectation to feel weak while knowing that whatever strength is there is God's, not our own. The clay jars of our lives are frail, weak, earthen, and unspecial so that whatever good is there can be clearly attributed to God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you have not received? Everything you have, you've received. You didn't earn it. You didn't work for it. It's all a gift even if God gave you the means to also work or to earn or to get. And if you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul says, don't boast like you received it, like you've earned it. Instead, Know that you've received it. The third paradox is affliction and protection in verses 8 and 9. Affliction and protection. Here's where he gives those four punchy, poetic paradoxes all related to affliction and protection. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. These four lines of contrast are, are showing Paul on the precipice. It's the idea that God has brought him right up to the cliff's edge, leaned him over that edge, and held onto his belt so that he didn't fall. 
He's right on the edge, though. Now, normally, when we're in severe trial, when we're in a season of unusual suffering, we don't talk exactly like this. I'll just speak for myself. I tend to emphasize the first half of each of those four lines. So I'll share it as a prayer request at times. I'll say, I am afflicted. I am perplexed. I am being persecuted. I am struck down. But what I often leave out is the second half of those lines. Not because I don't think they're true, just because I take it for granted. Very rarely do I talk about my suffering in terms of what I'm being kept from. Very rarely do I say, but I'm not crushed. But I'm not driven to despair. But you know what? He hasn't forsaken me. He's cutting me. He's pruning me. He's chipping away at my flesh, but he's not destroying me. It's a good thing to confess that. Paul's an example of that for us. And fourth, a fourth paradox is death and life. Death and life. You see verse 10, he says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now what is Paul getting at here? Well, other passages on the same theme can help us understand what Paul is getting at here. Just listen. Like in John 12, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Or perhaps more well known is Luke 9. If anyone would come, up, come after me, Follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or as he says in 1 Corinthians 15, one of his shortest sentences, I die daily. I die every day. So you see, through Jesus' death, we have life. But now as Christians, the life of Christ is to be manifested in our lives. And the life of Christ is one of sacrifice. That's why there's death language involved. So every day, we die to ourselves, hopefully, we are to die to ourselves, to our wants, to our desires, and, and live to his. We're even willing to literally die for him rather than deny him, if that should ever happen. The cross of Christ is both our payment and our path. It's a paradox. In the life that we live... For sacrifice is not one just of sacrifice as a discipline in and of itself. It's for others, just like Jesus' death was for others. So Paul, his sacrifice was for the Corinthians, he says here. And that leads right into the second main point here, verses 13 to 15. The second main point is the Christian's mission. We saw first the Christian's paradoxes. Here's the Christian's mission in verse 13. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith as the person I'm about to quote from, according to what's been written, that's King David in Psalm 116. There in Psalm 116, David wrote, I believed and so I spoke. It's a psalm where David wrote and praised to God after he was, after he was rescued from near death. And so Paul uses that as a it's sort of an illustration of what he's going through and how he believes and speaks. And here's what he speaks, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. And why will he do that? 
Why will we speak? Why do we believe and why do we speak? Verse 15, well, it's all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I believed, therefore I spoke. David and Paul both meant praise to God when they said spoke. They both meant testimony to God's goodness and grace. Belief in Christ is to be manifested verbally. A quiet faith should be an oxymoron. A private faith should be, in a sense, an oxymoron. Like those in Acts 4, those disciples who said, we cannot help but speak the things which we have heard and seen. In other words, we believe, and therefore, we spoke. So that the grace would extend to more and more people. There are people who haven't heard. There are people who don't believe like we do. They don't yet testify with us. They don't yet speak in praise to God. And and so we want them to, and we speak. We speak so that the grace extends to more and more people, and not just Them getting grace, but God getting praise. So that the grace would extend to more and more people to increase the thanksgiving which goes to the glory of God. This is one of the best verses to describe what we say we're about as Desert Springs Church. We say we are spreading God's glory broader and deeper. So we believe and we speak We speak so that the grace extends to more and more people, more and more breadth of glory and grace and worship. That's why we do missions. That's why we send people to unreached people groups, that they would speak and that they would have grace extend to them and they would join us in thanksgiving and they would enjoy God's glory, not just more broadly, but also more deeply as they grow. Do you know that grace that's in Jesus? Do you believe that he died in your place upon the cross? Do you believe that he was raised for our justification, our redemption, our forgiveness, our salvation? Call on him. Believe on him. Believe and speak your confession to him. Let him know. He knows your heart already, but let him know verbally and and even publicly eventually that that you're his and, and that you believe that you have received his grace. Let us know as Christians who want to help you that you have maybe recently or just even today come to believe and confess. Now, thirdly, in this passage, we see the Christian's encouragements. The rest of the passage has four encouragements for us. The Christian's encouragements. Remember, the whole point of this is that we not lose heart. And that's how verse 16 begins as Paul talks about an ongoing transformation. There's the first encouragement in this section. An ongoing transformation. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. Day by day. Let's think about each of those contrasting phrases separately. The first one, our outer self is wasting away. That means all of us are dying. We all know it. We've all moved one day closer to our deaths than yesterday. Today we did. Congratulations. Every birthday is a celebration of well, that's one year less, right? We don't say it that way, but, but that's really what it is. It's, well, that's one year less. I don't know how many, but it's one year less. We're all getting older. You don't have to be very old to start to notice that you're going downhill, right? I mean, I, I'm about to turn 40. That means I'm already playing on the back nine, right? I, I'm going down from here on out. That's... I'm not going to run a marathon. You know, there are probably no NFL players playing at my age right now. If there is, he's a kicker, I guarantee you. Uh, 
but real players. There are no real NFL players at my age playing football. There's no way I'm going to make it into the NFL. I'm downhill from here on out. We all know that. And even, I remember probably turning 30, I think that was when I started noticing weird things. That's when weird things like I coughed and tore a rib muscle. That happened. (laughs) What? Right? I mean, I sneezed and thrown my back out. How does that happen? And I'm told it just gets worse and worse, right? My list is really small compared to yours. I'm sure you could really show me up. That's what older folks do. They get together and talk about their ailments. They catalog them, they compare them, they complain about them together. That's, that's my future, apparently. <laughs> We're all dying, it's inevitable. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean we should let ourselves waste away as quickly as possible. There are plenty of other Bible verses that tell us to take care of ourselves. But nevertheless, we're living under a curse. This is a cursed world. We feel it. We're getting older. We're frail. We're under a death sentence. And we're all dying, you could say. And so no matter how much exercise I do or what kind of diet I'm on or whatever medical breakthrough comes or no matter how much I deny it, nevertheless, I will not ultimately be able to change this entropy that's happening, this breakdown that's taking place as I, as I walk towards death and as you do too. But don't lose heart. That's just the first part of it. It's a contrast. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, Paul says. There's the encouragement. Do not lose heart. Your inner self, Christian, is being renewed day by day. Outside, degeneration. Inside, regeneration. Like Colossians 3 talks about. We're to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Or like Ephesians 4 talks about, we're to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So hear this, we must believe And we must strive to believe and keep believing that God is working in our hearts day by day, however slow, even while our bodies are slowly or quickly wasting away. So which one should you focus on, you think? Should you focus on the wasting away of your body? Do you focus on that with fretting and fixing and trying this and trying that? Oh, no, wrinkles. Oh, no, sagging. Oh, no, this, that. Or do you focus on the renewal of your mind? You see, it's not just a promise that our insides, our our hearts and minds are being renewed by God, but it's also a, a responsibility. Like Romans 12 says, we're not to be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewing or the renewal of our minds. The second encouragement is a future glory. We've got a a present reality there, but we've also now got several future realities. A future glory is in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think of this in terms of scales, right? Two sides. Earthly affliction is on one side and heaven's glory is on the other. And Paul is essentially saying, which is heavier? Which one is more weighty, more significant? Or we could ask Paul, Paul, was it worth it? Was the suffering worth the glory? And he'd say, I don't even need to get out scales, man. I don't, it's not worthy to be compared. That's the language he uses in Romans 8.18, where he says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. 
Now, what did he mean when he said sufferings of this present time? What would that look like for him? What did he mean when he said light, momentary affliction? You got to wonder whether Paul read his own letter before he sent it off. Light, momentary affliction? He said back in chapter 1, he talked there about the, the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. He'll say in chapter 6, he'll refer to afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. And then the king daddy of all the lists is in chapter 11. Imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received from the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger, danger, danger. Did you see how weird it is that he said light, momentary affliction? It almost sounds insane. If nothing else, it sounds pastorally insensitive and careless to talk about people's affliction as being light and momentary when we know some affliction is quite, quite severe. If, if tomorrow my wife was tragically killed or one of my kids was tragically killed and someone said light, momentary affliction, they would be joining my wife or kid on the other side, right? I'd be going to jail that day. That isn't light or momentary, at least not by itself. The key to understanding how Paul can say this and it not be a lie, it not be insane, or it not be horribly insensitive is in the fact that it's a comparison, it's a contrast, it's alongside of this thing, an eternal weight of glory. Suffering is light and momentary only in light of the weight and eternal glory of heaven. By itself, Paul's affliction, or our own, isn't light or momentary, but in light of the unthinkable weight and eternality of heaven's glory, affliction can be considered, by comparison, light Momentary. It's amazing. The problem is that we all know very well the weight and the duration of our sufferings because we live in them and we think about them. But we haven't yet lived in heaven's glory. We're told about heaven's glory in scripture, often in symbolic ways and it seems otherworldly. We don't get it. We can't imagine. We're told about heaven and new heaven and new earth and, and promises that await us on the other side, but we don't think about them enough. We think about our suffering way more than we think about heaven. It's just That's a given, isn't it? I think we'd all agree. And so we can't comprehend the glory that will be revealed, and we can't comprehend how eternity won't be eventually boring. It won't be. What if, what if every Thursday was better than the Wednesday and every Friday was better than Thursday? What if it just kept getting better? According to Jonathan Edwards, he philosophizes that heaven won't just be incrementally better day after day or year after year. Of course, there won't be time, but, but he says it'll be exponentially better. It's, a, it's an arc that goes up. Every day we'll have more capacity for more joy and more worship. And then the next day we'll have more capacity for more joy and more worship and more knowledge of God. We will taste and see the Lord is good, not steadily, but increasingly and exponentially increasingly. And we don't even get that. We should just shout right now. We should just jump up right now. This should change everything. And we go, that's, 
That's weird. That's weird. <laughs> we need more thought of heaven. Thirdly, Paul talks about a future body. A future body. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, and he's referring there to our bodies, if that's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here's the bodily hope for these clay jars. For these things that are wasting away, Paul calls it a tent. It's temporary. A tent is temporary. But we have a building from God. We have heaven. Heaven is real. We know heaven is real, not because some little boy went there and came back and told his dad about it, and his dad wrote a book and then a movie. And no, we know heaven is real because Jesus talked about it. He said he was going away to prepare a place for us, and he will bring us to himself. And one day we will be with him, and we will see his glory. But we're not there yet. We know it. Our bodies, they feel it. They don't feel at home, do they? We groan, Paul says. Verse 2, in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. What is he saying? He's saying that the, the final hope for the Christian is not a, a disembodied a celestial spirit realm where we sort of bump into each other and we're ghosts somewhere in a in a heavenly city or something like that, but that our bodies are redeemed. We get new bodies, body and soul together. Our final hope is not that we would be freed from this body, but that we would be freed from this body because it's a new body. We won't be unclothed in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be further clothed. If it feels like we're clothed now in a temporary tent, we are, but we will one day be fully clothed. So we must believe and strive to believe that heaven is real, that we were made for it, and that's why we groan right now. That we are right now living in clothes which are mortal, and someday we will put on clothes which are full of life and immortality. Verse 5 says, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, and he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What two great, wonderful truths we have here. God has prepared us for heaven, for himself, for his presence, for a whole new creation. He's prepared us. You hear that individually. He has prepared you if you're in Christ for a new heaven and a new earth. And a second great truth, his spirit is a down payment given to us for that day of redemption that's still to come. How do we know he's gonna come back? How do we know he's gonna fix it all? How do we know he's gonna redeem these wrecked bodies? How do we know we will be with him because he's given us the spirit? And lastly, we see a future home. A future home. Notice the emphasis on, the repetition of future. Future, a future glory, a future body, a future home. We don't lose heart because of the future. We don't lose heart because of the future. We have a future home. Verse six, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Yes, the Lord is always with us, but we just learned it's through his spirit that Jesus is with us. Jesus said, I go away, and I will come again. And so there's a very true and real sense in, in which in this age, in this body, we are away from the Lord. 
We can pray to him, yes, but we are nevertheless away from the Lord and one day we won't be. And that is great news, great news indeed. So we must believe and strive to believe and keep believing that we are now not home. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here. We are right now away from the Lord. And Jesus said, when the bridegroom goes away, they will fast. They'll mourn. We shouldn't be surprised that this age we live in is sad, hard, that it feels like we're not home. To be home in heaven will be to be with him. I love my home because my family's there. My home, when my family isn't there, it's just a place. It's familiar, yes, but I don't like it. I don't like being there. You know, I watch TV till one in the morning because I just I need noise. I'm used to kids. I'm used to people. I, I, I like home because of my family, my, my peeps. And heaven will be great. Not because streets of gold or Aunt Eunice or someone you meet. It won't be great because you get to play all the golf you've ever wanted to play. It'll be great because Jesus will be there. We have that treasure in jars of clay, the treasure of the gospel. It includes the grace to obey. It includes uh, the grace to walk by faith and not by sight. It means he will bring us home to himself. He will transform our souls even now, and he will one day transform our bodies. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will be with him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your call upon our lives to give us the gospel, to shine saving light into our hearts upon that gospel so that we would see it for what it is and not walk in darkness, but believe. Help us who have believed, Lord, to speak. Help us to speak. Lord, give us eyes that long for you and watch for you. Lord, give us hearts that trust in your word. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Help us to not look at the things which are temporary, but the things which are eternal. Lord, help us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus. Give us eyes to watch for the future with great expectation and hope and joy for your namesake and glory.